I am not the same person as the 23 to 25 year old apprentices. If the entire shop has like, again, 20 person shop, if 19 of the guys in the shop are 25 or less, I have nothing in common with these people. Hey folks, welcome back to the Rent Turners podcast. The show that's about improving the life, well-being, and productivity of mechanics everywhere. I'm your host, Mr. Joshua Taylor, founder of WrenchTurners.online. Now, today is a special episode. I get to have two awesome humans on the show with me at the same time. On today's show, I get to talk with Corey Smith, National Fixed Operations Training Manager, and Brandon Malicote, the Business Income Development and Planning uh, Manager for National Auto Care, the APCO Holdings brand. On today's show, we get into a whole lot of stuff. Some stuff we didn't get to air. But on today's episode, we talk about how the radio is key to training. And I don't mean the one with the knob on the dial. I'm talking about the one on the other end, the talking, the doing, the doing the radio thing. Two, process, process, process. Just like in real estate, location, 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 automotive, success. Process, process, process. And three, mentorship and gratitude. Let's get into it. Um, Corey, yeah. tell us what got you into auto, uh, automotive, good sir. Well, um, let's see. My first real job was working at a radio station, and I did that for a number of years, and my wife um, wanted to have a family, and a lot of the radio station things were late at night. I did uh, nights and overnights, um, so if I wanted to be home during the day, I had to find another job. Um, living where we lived, uh, you know, the radio market was, was great, but... My second love was is car, is cars. Uh, I love automotive, um, so I went to a dealership and they hired me to be in their service department. And the rest I do to dare say is history. That's how I got into awesome. it. Awesome. <clears throat> and nobody could have told that. Nobody, after listening to all of your own podcasts and your shows, nobody could have suspected that you were in radio at all. The all perfect right. radio voice, enunciation, clear, makes you a great trainer. Like, it makes you a yeah. great trainer because you can get through everything's easy, easy peasy, and you can sort through things. And folks know that I am not and did not grow up in radio. I'm learning this as I go. I'm, I'm just I'm just a, a guy learning all this tech stuff and podcasting stuff and so on and forth, so forth. Brandon, what? tell the folks, what is it that got you into automotive? Um, simple. My wife told me, that she wanted to see me more, and I was in radio, and uh, no. <laughs> I don't uh, believe I that for a second. I don't think anybody else does either. Uh, I was 18 years old. Uh, I'm going to school, and my brother, uh, my elder, 18 years, he's my best friend in life, uh, was the GSM of one of the largest auto groups in the country, and uh, on Christmas break, I'm walking out of the showroom floor, and he goes, uh, hey, little brother, guess what I made last month? And he told me, and it sounded like a million dollars to me. <laughs> Something like right out of the Wolf of Wall yeah. Street. 
Yeah. 21 years later, here I am. So that's, that's how I got in the car business. Uh, started selling cars when I was 18 years old. I elevated very quickly and uh, have a lot of people to thank for that. But that, that's, I, I can tell you where I was standing uh, at the Bob Howard G. Chrysler Dodge building where I was walking down a, a platform and uh, I was telling him bye and he just literally, he did it on purpose. Hey little brother, guess what they paid me last month? And I turned around and he told me <laughs> and I just go, and, and, and here I am. So that's what happened. That's why I'm in the car business and that's why I'm here today. That's awesome. And, it, and it's interesting because, you know, family, family, cars or money after, you know, 27 or so, I'm not even sure how many there is. Actually, it's way more than 27 now. Um, so many guests on the show have uh, different stories of how they got to that point. But it always seems to come down to those one of three things. Either family is in automotive, the the realization that you can make a lot of money in automotive, whether you're you're behind the bench, behind the desk, or out front selling cars, you, you could make a lot of money doing this. You have a lot of training and, and certifications and education experience that you need to go through to get there. But you can when you put in the hard work. And one's family, one of you is family, one of you is money, and I'm cars. So all three on the board. Awesome. Awesome. So <laughs> Corey, what was the first store you were in? Like was what brand? It was a Chrysler Jeep Dodge store. Um my boss who hired me was a was a fan of mine at the radio station. And so he was he was very eager to train me. Um so I didn't know, I mean I knew enough to be dangerous, but I didn't understand the mechanics of cars, <laughs> right? I knew the sales part of it. Uh, I'd like to say I'm pretty good at talking and and selling, you know, the maintenances. I was really good with that. So he put me on the Jeep side and not the Dodge side. Um, thank goodness, because the Jeep customers were a lot nicer to me when I didn't really know <laughs> what I was talking about. <clears throat> and I just put those those three things together. We're all Mopar starts. I started in a CDJR here in, in, you know, not too far from here at a local Chrysler store. Um, store was owned by Daryl Sly, and his family still owns it to this day. And they owned it many, 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 I believe he bought it many, many, many years ago. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 years ago. But we all started in a Mopar store. That's awesome. I just put those three things together. That's kind of cool. So what, yeah. what was your, Corey, what was your first year selling, I guess, selling Jeeps like? Um... So working in the service department, I had to really understand scheduling. I didn't understand how to really schedule, and and, and I they didn't have a process, nor did I really. I, I just kind of wung it. It was winging it at, the, at that point. But I remember writing up two Grand Cherokees. They were both red, and one was in for an oil change and tire rotation. The other one was in for a 30k. I didn't verify the VINs. I wrote them. I wrote them up real quick. You know where this is going, right? Yeah. Um, I dispatched them. The one that was in for a 30k got an oil change and tire rotation. Uh -huh. The one that was in for a 30k, I mean, one was in for an oil change and tire rotation, got a 30k. Uh, so needless to say, um, the one for an oil change and tire rotation that got a 30k was super happy um, because he didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> My bad. 
right? And I never did that again. And, and Gary was really supportive. He's like, listen, everybody makes this mistake. Just learn from it. What are you going to do next time? I'm like, I'm going to verify the VINs next time, right? Um, and that really taught me a lot. And, and he was really in, very influential in my, in my career to, to really stay there. Um, and to work with that brand and to really understand um, maintaining, maintaining the vehicle and uh, talking to the customer in a way that they would understand what I'm talking about. He would, he would marvel at the fact that I would tell a technician, go ahead and do that $2,000 repair, and I didn't call the customer. The customer would come pick up, and I'd <laughs> tell him exactly what we did and how much money they saved, and they wouldn't be stranded on the side of the road, none of that stuff, and the customer would shake my hand, say, thank you so much for taking care of my vehicle, pay the bill, and leave. Happier than anything. And come he, back. And come back. He was so surprised. He's like, nobody I've ever witnessed do that. But you get away with it. How? I was like, I don't know. I'm definitely not cute. I have a face for radio, right? So I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, I will say, hearing you say that sounds familiar to what my first year on the desk was like going from going from technician to to service advisor and it took me took me about 90 days to kind of really find my feet because I felt like I had a lot to prove in that first 90 days because so many a lot of my peers at the time people who I thought were friends and were telling me you'll never make it you're not gonna make any money on the on the desk you know you should stay a technician to make make way more money as a technician and 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 you know you haven't got the aptitude you're too stupid you're too dumb whatever whatever and in the first 90 days, I felt like that, right? But it, when I found my feet and I realized that when you treat people like people and you don't treat them like wallets and you treat them in, in kind of the way that you want to treat your grandmother, you want people to treat your grandmother, they just – they spend money, right? They don't, they don't question it. They trust it. Because you're being genuine, and I think that's one of the things that draws me to you so often, Corey, is that you're a genuine person. Like there, there's no bullshit. There's no. It's you are what you are. Period. So I, I'm appreciative of that, and it's and it's interesting that that how that's how that comes across. <laughs> Brandon, yeah. What <laughs> without having too much pressure on you, what do you? <laughs> what was your first year like? <laughs> Huh. I worked for my brother, uh, worked for family. <laughs> so um, my father owned dealerships. Um, it's I was adopted at birth. Um, so, but when I was adopted, I was brought right in. <clears throat> my brother, 18 years older than me, he was a malacote. And uh, we have family saying, uh, shake a hand, um, make a friend, treat somebody like you want to be treated, and everything else will take care of itself. Um, I did training for, you know, 10 years AMI, and that uh, the joke was if I ever pass away and you guys are at my graveside, that is going to be on my uh, tombstone. And uh, that God is my witness is uh, the truth. Shake a hand, make a friend, treat someone, like, treat someone else like you want to be treated. Everything else take care of itself. Sorry to stutter. Uh, it's emotional for me to say that. Um, with that said, the first year was a nightmare. Um, with that said, 
I'll share with you two things. Uh, first, my first car sale, uh, when I first walked out on the point, that's where you walked out to, um, and <clears throat> it was a coach. So I've gone all, through all this training, right? They've taught me all the Joe Verdes and all the Grant Cardones. I'm watching all this VHS tapes. VHS, right, guys? Like, oh, my God. And uh, I'm on the point. I'm wearing my leather jacket. I'm 18 years old, and it was a coach from seven miles away that recognized me. And he was like, you're selling cars? I'm like, just go along with it, man. And <laughs> I watched my brother, you know, walk in. He closed it down for me. But... My brother had a process. Group one had a process. Bob Howard had a process. Second car deal, they come out of the box. We deliver it. I'm like, oh, my God, I made so much money. Second deal walks in. Um, I meet the customer. I shake their hand. It, it's like it's a process, right? I follow the process. Second car deal, I call my best friend. I'm like, oh, my God, I just made $352 in commission. Ah! <laughs> it's a process. I broke the process. I missed my uh, hat trick, my very first day selling cars. I broke the process. I uh, bypassed on the trade. I got the uh, trade appraisal back, and I tried to work the used car manager because I'm new, and I now I've sold two cars. I'm smarter than everybody. And I got <laughs> I learned real quick when the customer went the other way and left. I'm like, you're supposed to buy the car. What happened? Um, that a process is everything. So, anyways, that's that's a little bit about the first part of it. Um, for me, with that said, um, I lost track of your first question. You're gonna have to cut this. Uh, <laughs> no worries, no cuts necessary, buddy. What was your first year like? So, so far, we've got that everything's a process. You sold two cars, and on the third one, you you screwed pooch. I'll screw the pooch on the third one, right? So the first year. First year, I'm trying to prove myself to my brother, right? And everybody else. So um, I'm killing myself. I'm there every single day, six days a week. I'm not missing days off. And uh, it was, and I'll, I'll say this the day I die, my brother was literally the most integral part of, of my life. And where I am today, because he was trying to instill a process. And I want to say this, and I want to say it very respectfully, because of Mr. Howard, Bob Howard. Um, group One now owns the name Bob Howard Auto Mall. Um, but Bob Howard had a process that my brother believed in. And I lived with my brother for the first year. And you worked 12 hours a day, but when you went home, and I lived with my brother, for those three hours you have dinner and what did you talk about you talked about the car business and you talked about the process and you talked about um structure and you followed that so for the first year of my life um uh, in the car business from 18 to 19 to 20 years old it was ingrained in me step one a to z this is how it's done and you don't if if you stray a little bit left or right you know maybe it works out but for the most part it, it, it never will and my brother was just so integral and in just reining me back in every time i'd be like i'm gonna i'm gonna pass on this deal and he'd be like hey buddy come here no you're not gonna pass on that deal you strayed and 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 he would just like rein me in 
again, I can't, I can't stress enough how much that man meant to me, but he ingrained the fact that, and, and this is why I love Corey Smith, um, is that there's got to be a process in place. You have to follow it A to Z. And for it not to fail, you have to be bought in. And I was bought in with my brother. The team, there's 15 of us when I was a salesperson. I was the green pea of the guys, um, and they're still my friends today. There were six, 15, 16 of us. We were all bought in, every single one of us. We were the top in the region. We were one of the tops in the nation. And the reason why is because we were bought into that process. That and we, we were scared <clears throat> to death of my brother. So that's just... <laughs> so it sounds like your first year was uh, day after day after day of nonstop coaching a process, which yeah. both from both sides of that coin is a very good thing because you learn that that the pro you learn the process, what that specific process is. We're not going to go into the process today because it, it, that's that's a whole that sounds like it's a year education on its own. Um, <clears throat> National Auto Care. <clears throat> uh Right. What I will say is is having that whole first year with your brother, learning day in, day out, and learning something that I've recently I, – I'm not recently. This is – I keep saying recently like it was yesterday, but this is like years ago. Reading, reading and learning from people who teach and lead high-performance teams. And I, I reiterate, Jocko Willink, discipline equals freedom. And – Discipline to the process equals freedom. So when you think, you know, when you get into the mindset that you know you sold two cars and now you know everything, you're varying from the process. Yes, we can have our own mindsets. Yes, we can have our own, you know, kind of slight variations to certain things. But as long as you follow the process, and it allows us to be free in other areas, you can be yourself. As long as you're doing each step, like there's the handshake as part of the process, it's going to be your handshake. It's going to be your face. It's going to be your smile. It's going to be your candor and tone and, and uh, enunciation and how you go about things, but it's still following the process, right? And we do that in service. We do that in sales. We do that in parts. Everybody has a process that they need to follow. And that's awesome to hear that it was ingrained in you every single day by your brother. That's awesome. Now, lots of time has passed since then, not to make you feel old, the two of you, but lots of time has passed since that first Chrysler store for both of you. Corey, what's happened since then that has transpired? What are the, you know, what are the key points since then that has transpired to get you to be the, you know, working for National Auto Care as a trainer for service advisors? Wow, that's a, that's a lot to unpack, but that's that's an excellent question. Um, so, I worked at that Chrysler store for a number of years and went on to stay with the group was called Lee Automall, and I worked for their Toyota store and their um, Cadillac store. But then I got this really good offer from this other dealership called Summit Automotive Group um, out of Colorado. They bought a series of stores in the main market called Berlin City, and I jumped at it. Obviously, I just had new kids. It was a lot more money than I was making. Uh, Gary was great. He said, listen, you're not going to get paid that here. Go do it, right? My first day there, they don't have a process. It's a new DMS. I'm like, I can't do it. I want to come back. And he's like, give it a couple weeks. 
if it if you still feel that way, I'll take you back. That is, and that was, I I can't. I have to stop you for a second. There is. There is so much love that I have for this man that I have never met already. Somebody who is willing to say, I, I, I'm not able to do that here. I wish you all the best, all the support, all the love. If it doesn't work out, come on back. We'll take you back. I've got no hard feelings, no ill will. I want you to do the best for you and your family. That is, that is a level of, of de-stressing, de-anxiety. Like, that's an amazing leader. Yeah, he, he was... He was the reason why I stayed in the car business, and, and so after a couple of weeks, internally, I came up with my own process. I went home and, and wrote it down and almost treated it like a radio show, right? So when I had my radio show, I had a clock, and everything had to be done at certain times. The legal ID had to be played at the top of the hour, um, commercials had to be played 15 minutes after the hour, and then 20 minutes before the top of the hour. And in between that, I had talking breaks. So now I have this clock that I'm looking at because as advisors, we're selling time, right? So I got to understand time. So that's where I can't, that's what inlined my process. And I worked my pay plan and I actually made so much more money doing this that the dealership throughout my course from uh, 2000, 2008 to 2016, I worked at the same dealership. They changed my pay plan 16 times. Oh, my God. And I still kept crushing it because I had my own internal process, and I maximized what they gave me as a pay plan. So fast forward to 2016, my kids were getting older. I truly wanted to do something different. I've been a service manager, a fixed ops director, assistant service manager, lead service advisor, I didn't want to go back and be a service manager. I wanted to do something different, and I wanted to get out of the retail side of it and see what it was like being on the other uh, other side of the coin. So that's when I started my fluid business. And in doing the fluid business, selling fluids to auto dealerships and training along with those fluids, I learned that I really like training. And J.D. Power came in and said, hey, do you have time to do some consulting for us? I said, sure. They taught me a process. I learned a lot from J.D. Power. And I'm like, man, I'd really like to do just training and consulting. And that's what led me to National Auto Care. Um, so long story short is it was, it was more of I wanted to give back to show the advisors how I did it. And, and, and I was in a market that was really, I would classify really small, uh, Portland, Maine. In Maine, total was 1.2 million people at the time, and I had I made a pretty good living. And I think no matter where you live, no matter what your customer's income level is, if we give them a great experience and we communicate to them what their needs are, they might not do everything that day, but guess what? Ted Williams had great bat- batting average because he got base hits. He didn't hit home runs every time. I just want my advisors, when I teach them, get a base hit. Make the next service appointment. Get them to come back. I'd rather have base hits and doubles than try to swing for the fence. That's that's a great piece of advice there, and it doesn't matter whether you're an advisor or you're on behind the bench. You gotta swing the bat and you gotta look for a hit every single time. You might not get a hit every single time, but if you don't swing the bat, you're not gonna hit. But if you swing into the fence every single time, you're gonna burn out. 
mm -hmm. right? You're going to burn out. You got to learn your customers. You got to learn your product. You got to learn your processes, right? That's that's awesome. That's awesome. That was the one. That was the one thing I really enjoyed is that I wanted to know what the cars were due for, and my whole mantra has always been preparation equals control. So if I'm prepared for tomorrow's business today, I'm more apt to walk around and talk to Mrs. Jones about, hey, I took time out of my day yesterday to look over your history. Here's what I found, right? But, be but behind the scenes, I paid a technician to make this big book of maintenances that were due on every single vehicle that we had coming in. And I studied it. Nice. 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 That's a... I don't think too many folks get that level of preparation and understand what it takes to get there. And I think, you know, there are processes in place in some of the stores that I've been into. There's only one store that I've ever been into, sorry, two stores that I've ever worked in that had that level of desire for that kind of preparation. Um, the Chrysler store where I was an advisor, one of the service managers that was my leader was going out of his way to try and prepare us for that. He would give us weekly homework and like, I'm sorry, not weekly, monthly homework where we would have to like, how do, how do you look up this labor operation for this warranty repair on this vehicle of this model year and tell me what it is and tell me what it is that the technician needs to do in order to accomplish it so that we ensure we get paid the most for the repair. So mm -hmm. it was full research and development on that. And then what he did at the end of it, because he was doing his own preparation through us by delegation, so we were doing the homework, we were learning it, but what it did is we were building him labor operation formats, so he made an enti he had an entire Excel book of his own where he would go in that he could search. So the repair, uh, it would be a, a repair, like a, a troubleshoot, repair item, say no, engine noise, whatever the case may be, and he had them separated by noises, and then there'd be a labor operation sets of codes and a story that would go along with it that he would use to verify that everything was on the repair order for that repair. So if he saw that come through the shop, he'd go to his book or his Excel sheet, as it were. He'd look through his notes. If it was there, he'd reference it. So he'd go before he closed the work order to go to the warranty clerk because then the warranty clerk didn't have to have any issues reviewing it because he'd, he'd put a little check mark on it on the hard copy before it went up. It's like, I've checked this. I verified this. This is a good repair. This is a good story. This is the right labor ops. So there you'd get like an engine repair, which, you know, typical service manager, labor ops, I, I know – if I'm if I'm reviewing a labor operation on a work order for an engine repair, I'm spending probably 20 minutes reviewing it, making sure it's bloody right. Because the last thing I need is an $8,000, 10000 $20,000 repair coming back and being reviewed real quick. I want it right the first time. So having that level of preparation was key. But it taught me as an advisor what I need to do to research. And it, what it taught me is going down the road uh, as, a, as a future potential leader that – that is the level of preparation required in order to be a high-value leader. So that's, that's really cool. And it's cool how you've done it as well. Now, Brandon, what, what's for you, same question, what's happened between that, that first – I know, man. I keep making you go second after those. 
what what happened between your first uh, year at that Chrysler store till now for for you working for National Auto Care? Oh. Uh, I'll keep it quick. I excelled quickly. Uh, had a couple of people that really believed in me. Um, I excelled uh, into the finance office. Um, was at the uh, top of uh, Group One of the region. Uh, excelled from there. I was 23. I managed a desk um, for one of the top G Chrysler Dodge uh, dealers in the region. Um, followed a friend of mine to a group uh, called the Bob Morado Group. It's one of the most prestigious here in Oklahoma. Uh, I think they've got 15 stores now. Um, was a finance director uh, by the time I was 25 for an auto group. I think we sold 350, 400 cars a month. I had a team of four guys. Um, and uh, just had an eye on the prize that, you know, I wanted to run a store one day. Uh, I got a phone call in 2012 from an old boss that asked if I would ever want to be on this side of the industry uh, as far as uh, I guess you could say consulting and I said I had no desire. I said there's no amount of money you could ever pay me. I, I, I had a focus, I had a vision of where I wanted to be when I was 35 and, uh, and he says you got to meet this guy. His name's Corey Bates and he uh, runs this agency called Assurance Marketing. Alright, whatever. I'll meet with him. And um, had a very successful agency here in Oklahoma. And uh, there's a couple of guys that worked there that I knew. Uh, met with him and fell in love with the guy. Uh, he's, I'll make fun of him right now because he could turn me into a pretzel tomorrow. He's a four-time All-American wrestler from Oklahoma State. <laughs> he's the size of a jockey. And, uh, he's the oh, my goodness. He's the sweetest you've ever met and, until you piss him off. Until you piss him <laughs> off, then he'll turn you into a pretzel. Um, I'm walking out of the interview. I'm I, I walk in shirt and tie, and he's like, "You're completely overdressed." He, was, he tells me about what they do, and uh, he's a rep, right? In my eyes, they're reps, and I hate reps. I don't, I don't like them. Uh, it's you guys have come across them, you know. Uh, they're they're trying to sell you guys parts. Uh, in our space, they always come in. They uh, they want to know what have you done for them lately, and then how you can improve. You're there for 12 to 15 hours a day. They walk in for about one hour. They're going to bring you some pizza and then they're going to say, hey, um, you know, have you thought about doing this and you just want to throw your pen at them and be like, hey, listen, I'm going to be here <laughs> for another 12 hours. If you want to sit here, you know, I, I'll do what you do. I had zero respect for them. I, don't, I can't stand reps and I can't stand reps to this day. I'm not a rep. Um, it's a three-letter word that I can't stand. But I met this man and I fell in love with him. Long and short, my wife and I had gone to, it was a Wednesday night, uh, it was a church group, and I'm getting gas, it's cold as hell outside, I think it was like negative 12 degrees, uh, I'm still in my demo actually, it was a Subaru Outback, I'm getting gas, he calls and I miss the call. And so I, I finished getting gas, I get back in the car, my wife's like, hey Corey, call. I said, okay. Mind you, Corey had also asked to interview my wife, which has never happened to me in my life. Any boss had ever said, hey, I'd like to interview your significant other about, you know, whether this is the right place for you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He offers me about 50% less than I've ever made in my entire life and, uh, and says, but hey, there's a lot of upside. 
I get off the phone and I'm retail minded, right? We're all worried about our money. And I get off the phone, I tell my wife, and she goes, take the job. I said, well, and she's like, well, if you're as good as you think you think you are, you'll be just fine. <laughs> 11 years okay. later, here I am. I went to work for the man, and uh, he gave me a pay plan, and uh, it was acquisitions was a part of it. Acquisitions is something that I'm good at. Um, I care about my dealers. Um, Corey knows this more than anybody else. Josh will learn this about me, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I don't care about my pocketbook. I care about the people that I sign. Um, if I'm making them money ethically, doesn't matter. Um, how it comes ethically, not just from the variable side, not from a finance side, because that's what we're known as is, uh, you know, work with finance departments, compliance, um, practices, and running a number. That's 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 our, you know, that's our space. Um, I'm more worried about holistically what can we make for a dealer from not from just from create from sales ethical people from sales. Good management practices, good F&I practices, making money ethically, and then taking it one step further. Because we are in a space with other companies that we compete against every single day that look at dealers in their eye and say, I can provide you three things. I can provide you recruiting, I can provide you F&I numbers, and I can provide you training. Well, what's that mean? Well, that's... But if I can look a dealer in the eye and say, I can, I can also provide you training in a space that no one else does. They, we have competition that says they have it, but they don't. In the fixed operations era, in a fixed space, we can actually put money on the bottom line. That is my goal in life. It's been my number one awesome. goal ever since I came to this side of the industry. Uh, I work retail hours. Um, I It's... Corey will tell you, Corey is as uh, workaholic as I am. Um, I am obsessed with it. I will probably die a young death because of it, but I, I, I believe that people that do what I do, what Corey does, and other people with me, my team, is not to go in there and consult. It is to make, put money on the bottom line of our dealers, period, end of story. If they're in the black, in all spaces, and their financial is healthy, then guess what? One, we're not going to get fired. Um, Beauty. And then two, it's it's they're going to they're going to ring the bell for us, and that's the mission I've been on for the last 11 years since I went to work for Corey Bays. Um, obviously, it's evolved into this. We sold to National Auto Care two years ago. I thought it was the greatest thing Corey Bays ever did, not because he wasn't a bad leader. But it's what he needed to do necessary for us. It was kind of a launch pad for us to like, for the technology, the 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 um, the amount of capital that was around us to just he he saw a nucleus in our office that could help National Auto Care just take it to a whole nother level. And as cliche mm-hmm. as that is to say, mm-hmm. that's what I believed in when he did it. And some of us around that off when I mean when you're told one it hey we sold and there's a bunch of you at an oval and you're just like you're like <laughs> this is exciting <laughs> and you've got it's amazing Jimmy Allen and others going oh my god what just happened you're just like oh my god he just did the best thing for us 
And then it was like three months later I met, met Corey Smith. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is like a whole nother just in our tool chest that we can just go out there and beat the banner to be the freaking best that we can be in the industry. That's, that's what excites me. And that's what's happened from the first year you just asked me about Joshua, about being that salesperson. Mm -hmm. Those processes my brother instilled in me, and not to mention kicked my ass to get to where I am today. And then people like Corey Bays taking just, you know, myself. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but molding me into what I am today. Um, and then having the foresight to do what he did to just grow this company. Uh, we believe we're a part of this company and, and that we're going to take it to, I, I hate this cliche, but it, it is to a whole new level. I mean, we have competition out there on the day to day, the things they can compete with us. And I will look you in the eye and tell you, they have nothing on us. They can't compete with us. They don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the work ethic and they sure as hell don't have the brain power that that man sitting right in the middle of the screen I'm looking at has um, to do what wrong. we do. And that's that's not why wrong. I'm so proud of this company and so proud of being side-by-side uh, -side with that man every single day. Corey's amazing. Wow. And I, I think I think gratitude gratitude around um, for the, the folks that have mentored, I think, in, in this circumstance, I, I think all three of us are grateful for the mentors that we've had over the last 20-plus years those that yeah. got us into the automotive industry, those who have kept us in the automotive industry, those who have nurtured us through the challenges, the, the lows and the highs, those that have given us the opportunities mm. that we wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, I, I, every day I'm reminded, you know, my first shop foreman, Rob Mackay, he's the reason why I stayed in the industry because the first, the first six months to a year of being an apprentice sucks. Like, it it that suck to suck really comes from being an apprentice. Like it sucks to suck. Now there's there's exceptions to that rule, obviously, um, but for the most part, it sucks to suck. You know, your first year making mistakes and being reminded of it frequently, Brandon, by your brother, suck to suck. But it got you where you were. Corey, your first year, like your first week, your first day, your your Grand Cherokees, two reds, you know. You know, one's basically a $400 repair and one's a, a, an $80 repair. That could have gone completely south. You know, that could, have, that could have been very, very bad for you had you not had the kind of leader and mentor you had at the time. Yeah. And, and that exists, you know, similarly, all three of us have been in training sessions where we're, we're looking at someone dead in the face and realizing, you know, some are worth all of your time, energy, and effort that you can give. Because they're willing, they're willing to receive it, and they're willing to give it back. And there are some that are not worth your time, energy, and effort. And I think all three of us are thankful that we were that person that was, was deserving of that time, energy, and effort. And that's got to all three of us to where we are now. And to that end, that you know, 10, 15, 20, 20 plus years that all three of us have, we got 60 plus years of experience between us. Corey, what was... Using that experience you've had to date, you know, thinking about those red Grand Cherokees, what's your piece of advice, uh, knowing that you've, you know, you like to break things and you're really good at breaking things and not so great at fixing things, what's your piece of advice for a technician to be happier and more productive tomorrow? Well, that's a great question. So, you know, to have a technician 
something that they will have more peace of mind is is I think far outweighs everything else is being at a place where you're you're pushed to be better, you're supported, and they're and they're spending resources on educating you. And I think that outweighs a lot because that gives the in my mind that would give the technician more peace of mind than going to a place that all they are is just you're just a number to them, you know, get this done, 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 right? Where here you're being nurtured. And I think that helps the mindset for a technician. I, I think techs over the last, you know, three or four decades have been abused. And I, and I mean abused to the sense that they are now leaving and going to other industries and every dealer around this country is feeling the pinch because they didn't take care of them to begin with. They didn't realize that even though your name's not on the sign technician, we value you, right? So if you're, if you're a dealer that is listening to this and you spend all your resources on sales and F&I and give them all the gold watches and all the trips and all this and all that and the rest of your business sees that and they're not getting any of that that's where everything butts heads and that's the animosity that's where i won't i don't want to be here because i'm not being appreciated 100 percent. just just like if you have kids right you can't treat one like the all-star and the other one like the redheaded stepchild you've got to have some kind of middle ground where you're doing it for everybody 100%. no matter how much sales is making you you need service as well. It's the and circle, right? It completes the circle. Like what, what you're talking about is, is a high-value leader that is uh, not just in service, but at the top of the food chain, the GM or ownership that is investing in the entire team, not just in some of the team. You know, sales is the single, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I've been juggling these two. What's more valuable, sales or copy? And I think... In 2023, copy is starting to outweigh sales because we're so digitized. Things hit copy, the internet, social media first. So you have to have better copy. But copy needs to be top-notch first and then salesmanship. And technicians are salespeople too. If you're not investing in all of your salespeople and all of their sales skills, you're losing. Technicians need to know how to communicate just as effectively as a salesperson does, right? A salesperson needs to close business, right? A technician so needs to be able to communicate that close, correct? Let's, let's talk about that. Let, let's jump into it a little bit more. And, and yeah, let's talk I about think, that for a second. Um, so it, I, I'll be straight with you on this. Um, techs, so service is the most integral part in a dealership. Um, some people may say, well, you know, it's this farm that they touch the most customers, right? Of anybody. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you're, let's say there's 75 rows a day, that's 75 customers. I mean, you ask a, a dealer that's variable minded, um, are you going to sell 75 cars? If you had 75 opportunities, did you sell, you know, let's just take that, uh, 10% or 20% closing goal and say, did we sell 25 cars? If we could sell 25 cars a day, we'd all be beating the bell. I mean, all three of us right here, we could write a book and we'd be rich. 
fact of the matter is, is that a lot of just average dealers are touching anywhere from 25 to 75 a day. If mm -hmm. we are properly answering the phones and we've got, right, um, the proper appointments set um, and we're getting those customers in. So there's text. So let's talk about text. Texts are different than uh, salespeople. Um, salesmen, they are, are uh, they're the billboard, right? They are, they're what you see. They're that credit union sign when you walk by and says, when you're driving by, it says 2.9, that little sign out there. It's the first thing that a person sees, and then they walk in and they meet that salesperson and say, yeah, we offer 2.9. If they're not properly trained, um, then they're no good to us, right? We, our dealers spend tons of money in advertising. Um, every customer, they'll tell you in the sales meeting, every customer that walks in costs me $300, you know, and they'll chastise the salesperson for that. A technician needs to be treated no different than a salesperson. They are the blood life to a dealership, period, end of story. They can, they, they can walk to an advisor and tell a person no different than a salesman can walk to a sales manager. And if they're properly trained and they actually, they believe in the, in the dealer, they'll tell them without revocation, hey, this is what I've got. This is what's going on with your car. This is what I've got going on with my car deal. And that's, that's what gets the whole thing churning, right? And that's, that's, I've never been able to figure out how to marry it together. I know Corey Smith is killing himself to figure out, you know, with processes and, and same with you, Josh, we're trying it on our side as well is like to not necessarily beat in the heads of people, of managers, not dealers. Dealers know it. It's managers going, hey, listen, remember where you came from. I'm sure you guys see it on your side is like, you guys are the lifeblood, technicians, salesmen. It all starts from the front lines and it works its way up. And, and, and that's where it really takes off. And that's just, you know, me going on a tangent. I apologize, fellas. That's okay. I like tangents. Tangents breed all kinds of new experiences and, and, and stories. And I think fundamentally that's those stories need to get told, right? And those stories need to be communicated the the the, you're talking about technicians leaving to other industries, and you're you're right. Some of them aren't technically leaving the industry. You know, they're still being mechanics. They're just being mechanics in a different way. Um, for example, you know, uh, um, my buddy Marshall what Sheldon. Else? He is he is constantly uh, trying to recruit uh, automotive technicians to HD. You know, hourly. Most of them work. You know, they they work long hours from time to time but if they work an extra hour they get paid an extra hour but they have overtime you know if they if you know if their contract happens to be eight hours a day and they work nine they get overtime on that nine and it's pre-written there's no qualms there's no it's it is what it is and most of them are paying very very well we had a discussion i think this past weekend when we recorded you know series three you know his his apprentices so year one apprentices don't need any experience of any kind from anything else, right? They walk in and they do five hours of overtime a month. They're making 70 grand, right? Year one, year one. And his franchise, the franchise that he works for and, and the store he works for and, and the company he works for, they're paying for training as much as humanly possible. Get these folks trained up as quickly as possible. They're, they're level one certified, if I, if I recall 
rightly he can quote me afterwards once he hears this, but he can he can change it. But after the 90 days or before the 90 days is up, they've already got a certification. So they go in their 90 day probationary hearing, so to speak. They've already got a, a fairly large amount of accreditation to their name. 90 days in. And it's like instantaneous pay bump hourly. There goes to my paycheck. And I don't have to think about how much I produce because, you know, Marshall, my my mentor, my leader, is taking me out every day and showing me exactly what needs to be done to be an absolute monster turner wrenches, right? This is not happening as often as it needs to in automotive, right? I'm not talking about the $70,000 necessarily. I'm talking about processes to cultivate mostly young people, but cultivate new apprentices, new mechanics into this industry successfully to turn them into absolute monsters for our customers. We want them turning ours. The challenge is, as, as Corey stated, the last 30, 40 years, there has been a, a level of abuse that has started to make technicians be wary of the trade, get out of the trade, and so forth. Now, lots of blame is put on a lot of people and a lot of things, and the top of that, that food chain of blame is flat rate. I am not normal. I don't think there's anything wrong with flat rate. That's going to cause some heat for those that listen that, that don't like it. There is absolute, and I'm going to say it again, there is nothing wrong with flat rate. The only thing that is difficult about flat rate is OEs who believe it is acceptable to lower times where it is not achievable in the real world that is it mm -hmm. that's a hundred percent the challenge <clears throat> is and where they're there i i'm sure of it because i may not be that intelligent but i have experience when you have a technician and a tool company working together because there's some really smart tool companies out there that create systems processes and tools to take a five and a half hour job to half an hour they still get five and a half hours. Our bottom line in fixed ops loves that. The OE does not. They go, oh, you can do it in a half an hour? Okay, it pays a half hour now. And then the rest of the trade in that works for that brand has absolutely no idea why that's happened. None. So A, OE, potentially... The, the G word comes into there, which you all know which word I'm talking about. And secondly, a lack of communication. If the OE says it should take you 0.5 to do this and no one except maybe a, a handful of very intelligent tool and technicians have figured it out, tell everybody. Tell everybody how, it, how it's done, right? Tell everybody so that we don't lose our shirts. Awesome. It's, it's the only trade that is governed by the manufacturer. If I'm an electrician and book time is to do this job is this, and this is how much I charge, they get paid that. Mm -hmm. The technician job is no longer sexy. You get beat on every day. Your body hurts. You're spending your own money on tools. Mm -hmm. And then you have the manufacturer changing times for you, or the service manager needs to hold on to more growth so they change their labor times but they bump up their door rate <clears throat> there has to be a level of like you said communication but mm -hmm. there also has to be a level of 
we need to take care of each other. Mm-hmm. Right? It's everybody as a whole, the industry as a whole. Technicians used to just leave from one one dealership to another. Mm-hmm. They're no longer doing that. And the future technicians are actually interviewing dealerships to see if they're a good fit for them. It's no longer about all about the money. It's about is this going to be a place where I can learn and grow? It's what I'm coaching. Fit first, find a high value leader. If you first thing to worry about is not pay. First thing to worry about is do you work for a high value leader? The answer is yes after you do your appropriate interview questions as a technician and if you don't know what those questions are, I posted the interview with Zach Perko last week. That is the first one of hopefully many that I'm going to do. If you don't know how to ask those questions, listen to it, watch it. There will be more. I am posting them regularly. Two, brand not relevant. Brand that you work for is not relevant. Three, fit in the shop. Fit in the shop. I, I've said this, in, in I think I said this with, with Gunanen when I was on his show, Beyond the Wrench. Fit in the shop is important. You know, if you are uh, an outdoorsman and you hunt and fish and every possible chance you get, you're either out every weekend or, you know, you're out in the fall deer and moose hunting and you hunt duck and you hunt goose and and you're out like everything and you're that kind of person and you walk into a shop in the suburbs of of Oklahoma, let's call it, and everyone else in the shop, I I, I have no idea whether Oklahoma is country or, or city Give me a break. I'm Canadian. It's, bo- it, it's both. It's both. But we'll have to bring you to Oklahoma and oh, love it. 100%. But my point is this outdoorsman that goes to work at this Chevy store and he walks in and there's 19 other uh, dudes in the shop and every single one of them is wearing a suit and every single one of them has a brand new car, not a truck, and every single one of them listens to Panic at the Disco and not Luke Combs. <laughs> like you're, you're not, you're not going to fit. That is not, not a good place for people. you. They're not, not your, your people. people yeah. If you walk into that shop, for another example, and I, I posted this differently uh, uh, previously, as a 40-year-old, almost, oh, I'm saying 40. My God, my kid is ingrained in element ready. I'm getting old. As a f- almost 40-year-old man with a wife, a house, a nine-year-old, and responsibilities and a mortgage, I am not the same person as the 23 to 25-year-old apprentices. If the entire shop has, like, again, 20-person shop, if 19 of the guys in the shop are 25 or less, I have nothing in common with these people. And I haven't had any time to build rapport. And it's going to take me a minimum of six months to build any rapport with any of them. And if none of them have family and none of them have long-term spouses and none of them live locally, I'm going to have almost nothing in common with them. I'm not going to fit. So as a high-value leader... A high-value leader would never hire me for that spot, and that's my point. A high-value leader would ask questions, and to your point, Brandon, you had a leader potentially hiring you, and they wanted to meet your wife. They want to know what she was like, what your home life is like, what, what, what your family, what your those goals, aspirations outside of work are, because if they aren't succinct with your work life, like if you don't have, we'll call it aspirations of grandeur, but if you don't have aspirations of grandeur, that is not necessarily the right person for someone who's wanting to be in a multi-billion dollar industry in acquisitions, right? You're not going to be in an industry where you know, you're looking at seven-figure data every day. That is not you – know, someone who wants to work a 95 doesn't do that, right? 
A blue collar nine to five doesn't do that. They want to work their nine to five, and there's that. And don't take this as as I'm diatribing here a bit, but don't take this as a bad thing. Somebody who is blue collar and wants to work nine to five, there's nothing wrong with that. We need lots and lots of those folks. We want them to be happy in their nine to five, and they want we want them to make a good living in their nine to five. But we want them to be happy and do that. But that's not those two things are not the same. Fit, right? Fit. And that leads me to your your question, Brandon. How would you what, – what's your piece of advice? What was, what's your piece of advice so, for a technician to be happy? I, not necessarily just tech. Um, leaders, um, I would disagree for a minute with you because um, we have to fit, right? Like to your point, a 40-year-old walking into a 19- and 25-year-old culture, um, pulp culture, and, you know, you've got, you know, a saxophone maybe in hand. Um, that shout out to John John Fraser. We as leaders, <laughs> um, we as leaders um, have to have the aptitude um, and hopefully the knowledge and, and characteristics to be able to adapt to our surroundings. Um, whether it's something older or younger, I, I fight with this every day with our guys. Um, you know, if I've got somebody that's 35 years old and their manager's 56 years old and they just don't necessarily agree with each other, um, we need to work on learning that person's personality and, and somehow understanding them. It's a love language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I'm, I'm 40 or 45 and I'm put in this situation, I had this happen to me 12 years ago with a Subaru Land Rover deal. I almost got kiboshed on the job because... Uh, my personality traits at an auto group um, was uh, stolen, like type A dominant personality. But I wanted the Subaru position so bad that I could taste it um, because it was married to a Land Rover deal, and there's a lot of money there, um, both in uh, just not sales but fixed as well. And I was going to be tied to that pay plan. Selfishly, I wanted that job. Um, but you, you had to adapt to that personality. And, and fortunately enough, I had mentors before me um, that mentored me to the, the fact that, hey, listen, you have, you have this personality here, and you have, you, have a, you have a dominant, you have an A, pragmatic personality over here, and you have a thinker that's over here. They're going to have a notepad in hand, and you're going to think that you know everything in two seconds. And how do you marry those two together in 30 seconds to make a deal? Um, or... To make a friendship, um, I mean, just look at it historically. Marriages, opposites attract, right? And sometimes in business, we don't necessarily look at it that way. We're, we look at it as if you don't have my personality, then you don't fit with me, or if I don't, if I don't fit with you. But somehow in marriage, it's always worked, right? Like if you just think about it, if you take out of the context of the of the work life and you just look at marriage. If you look at it historically, opposites attract. If you literally look at all personality traits, all the studies that have been done, dominant personalities and thinkers or socialites and facilitators, they attach, right? And it works, and they have great marriages. However, in business, if you don't have my personality or if you're younger than me and I don't necessarily take the time to understand, you know, and, and, then that's where I disagree just a titch is that we have to have a little bit of empathy. Um, and then also um, in our industry, which is uh, 
a million percent looked against um, patience. There's no patience in this industry. Mm. We have patience. Now, I'm, I'm, I am, I, I try to them. teach patience as much as I can, try and teach my son as much as I can, but I am a tailor through and through. And, and for, for yeah. my, my <laughs> grandfather told me, his father, his, his father, my great grandfather, it, it, we are not patience people. We are not patient people. If you are a tailor, you are not a patient person. I am not a patient person. Um, my wife and I, um, when we fight, it's a mushroom cloud. We know that. We know that <laughs> we have a disagreement to separate rooms, right? We know that about each other. It's what makes us special. Um, we're fighting right now. It was over the most minuscule deal. Instead of fighting about it, it's like two words. Like, we know there's going to be a mushroom club. You separate. And guess what? In two days, we'll be best friends. And that's what we know about each other. It's no different than in business. Unfortunately, and, and this is the only reason I disagree with you for a second on that, is that as professionals, we have to know that. We have to, we have, to have the aptitude and patience to go in and go, listen, they're younger. They listen to different music. We do have we have nothing in common, but I've gotta find a way to make it to to fit in. In turn, they have to fit we have to show vulnerability a vulnerable <laughs> side. Let me spit it out. A vulnerable side of ourselves where they go, look at this forty year old or fifty year old or whatever, you know, this gray hair over here. And, 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 and again, and that's how you make one come. So I didn't mean to disagree with you there. Um, no, you know what? Uh, I think I the conversation is necessary, right? The conversation is necessary. And, and the reason why I say, right. you know, the common and, – and I, I think I agree with you and, and to – I won't necessarily concede. But at the same that's time, true. there is a, there's a line there. <laughs> and then there's a line of concessions uh, I think there's a line of concessions that each leader and each technician and each service advisor and each F&I person needs to, to know where their own personal line of fit is. And whilst I, draw, I paint a very uh, extreme picture of like 19 to 1, I agree the adaptability, you know, that's a really key piece of advice there. And I think that's, that's a, I think to summarize in a word is, a, is adaptability um, of, of to make your next day happier than every day after is if you aren't an adaptable person, you need to learn, start to learn baby steps to become adaptable because not every circumstance and every situation and every store that you're ever going to work in is going to be, you know, a hundred percent of the people that you're working with like you, like your hobbies, your personality traits, your convictions, your belief systems, and so on and so forth. Oh no, wrenches. That's the end of another episode, which means... You need to click one of the buttons that are coming up in the following to subscribe and or share and or look at the next video or watch the next video. Make sure you're watching Wrench Turner's podcast on the next video, on the next video, on, or on the on, on the subscribe. Folks, really hope that you enjoy, get value from, and most important, subscribe. And as always on the Wrench Turner's podcast, we finish one of our one-to-one-to-one interviews with a quote advice is like snow the softer it falls the longer it dwells upon and the deeper it sinks into the mind Samuel Taylor Coleridge remember folks negative pushes positive pulls 
and always clean your toys before you put them away. That's twice the